My guest today is Dr. Stephen Porges, the man who created the polyvagal theory, which is a profound work, a transformative work about trauma and the body and how the body responds in different situations. Stephen Porges, PhD, is Distinguished University Scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and Professor Emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as President of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. In 1994, he proposed the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution to the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral problems and psychiatric disorders. He is the author of numerous books, including the book I've read, which is The Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory, The Transformative Power of Feeling Safe. He is the creator of a music-based intervention, The Safe and Sound Protocol, which currently is used by more than 1,400 therapists to improve spontaneous social engagement, to reduce hearing sensitivities, to improve language processing, and state regulation. Just a little word about our recording. There were some microphone issues, so there was some wind and some crackles, and I hope that this won't interrupt your viewing and listening pleasure. Dr. Stephen Porges, welcome to Compassion in Action. Well, first of all, uh, Fritzi, thank you for inviting me to share my perspective with you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's your wisdom and <clears throat> what you've, how you've, you know, deconstructed this, this problem we call our human condition is just. Well, it, it's, it, you know, I've been writing recently and I've been going back over what I wrote uh, in the early nineties and saying, hmm, that's, that's very interesting. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> must be it. I'd like to meet that guy. You know, it's like, <laughs> How, how did that guy put it together? I mean, I'm looking backwards and saying, you know, how did I do that? And the interesting part was when I did it, I thought it was obvious and derivative. You know, because, you know, you, you see the history of science, you see the history of questions and you put them together and you say, oh, this is the next thing. And, you know, it, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh I would say uh, journey of humility and and gratitude. So it's, uh, you can only see one you can only see oneself as a portal, and not as uh, anything more than that. You know, just having being fortunate to have the skills to put things together. Anyway, that's my story for today. <laughs> yes, but to be there and to have all of that education and all of that awareness, so that that information could become apparent, is so. Well, um, we're so grateful to you. Well, you know, thank you very much. The The issue, what I really am trying to say is we don't know who we are. You know, it's like some things happen for some of us and some things don't. And we better feel grateful if we're able to do good things that, with the stuff that we comes through us and is developed with our, with our help and the help of others. So as we learn over time is when people take too much credit, 
you really don't want to know those people, do you? <laughs> well, I know that's, yeah. but see, I think that's, that's a traumatic response actually. Yeah. yeah. Because people who are traumatized haven't been seen. So they need to feel like they're important. Right. They haven't seen the word I'm now using has been witnessed, you know, and which means someone has been, uh, there in their presence to allow them to be who they are without making them feel chronic evaluation. So actually before, let's talk about you and your journey, Krista, and then tell me what you'd like to accomplish. I'd like to accomplish information for the people in prison. That's really, and, and our listeners, because I really think there's a lot of returning citizens that may be tuning in and just the layperson. Um, so my, my re request is that we really simplify it. Um, and like a word like neuroception, while I think we should use it, I think we really need to break it down. Um, and I think we stay away from ventral vagal and va dorsal vagal and maybe yeah. go so with safety. What, what, what's your background? So, uh, so uh, I'm a filmmaker. Okay. And um, I went to Vassar College, studied filmmaking in English. But once I read Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, um, I have eight aces, highly traumatized um, woman, young girl. And um, that changed my life. I read it four years ago and it's like, oh, that's my behavior. That's not who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so then I walked into a prison a month later after I read that book and I just saw behavior. I didn't see bad people i just saw yeah. people yeah and so compassion prison project all we're doing we're creating a 12-part series called trauma talks mm. to educate the people in prison about trauma yeah yeah, yeah. When, when i start interacting in the foster child world that's the world you're interacting with in the prisons and you say not even a chance i mean if we talk about society and not even, I mean, these are people whose lives never had any safety in it. Oh, I did work in a prison when I was a grad student. So I, I was a, a uh, I was a prison guard in a county workhouse, but they had felons, and I spent time with the felons as well. They were they were more interesting. So they 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 viewed their their work as a profession. So it was a very uh, it was a very interesting summer for me. Wow, this was before, before. It was in grad school. It oh. Actually, it was summer of 1967. I'm from the East Coast, and that was during the riots. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so people were getting locked up. Uh, they, I, it was an interesting summer, is what I'm saying. Where on the East Coast? Oh, I grew up in New Jersey and left there in about, when I went to graduate school, I left and I never really returned. But I came back at the end of the first year and... Uh, my father, who was in vocational education, knew the warden, so they uh, gave me a job. So it was an interesting job. Interesting, because we're developing a program for correctional officers as well. Yeah. Because safety is a big issue in prison. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, most of them learned that it's not safety, but it's dominance. So that was the, it's a hi hierarchical model within prisons. Yes, but you know, the life expectancy of a correctional officer is 59 years old. Uh, how many by suicide? Well, it's a 39% higher chance of suicide yeah. than yeah. the national average. Yeah. yeah. 
No, it, it's it's not a good life. Um, not a good life. And you ask questions, who's incarcerated? Is it the prison guard or the prisoner? What's your definition of trauma? Uh, the definition of trauma, I, this is actually a wonderful question because I think it, it gets at everything that we'll be talking about, is that in general, trauma has been defined as an event. And but our nervous system really doesn't care about events really it cares about how we respond to events so trauma is our body's reaction to an event and so we have to be very careful about attributing trauma solely to an external cue or external bit because when we do that we end up by saying well that didn't bother me why are you falling apart and we start getting into judgment of others and blaming in a sense the survivor or the victim of the traumatic event, it's because they couldn't, in a sense, resolve it. Their bodies were very, very uh, vulnerable. So, so in the world of trauma, we've been really selling the issue that traumatic events are everything. In fact, uh, when we talk about trauma, we often use cumulative adversity scales that nearly accumulate the number of traumatic events that we've been exposed to. Now, in general, that's helpful and useful, but it misses out on the many who functionally are re, let's say traumatized, their nervous system has been reorganized by events that others would view as not being traumatic events. So we need to, in a sense, respect the individual's reaction. And so trauma is really a bodily response, bodily feelings. And it's an individual response. It, one yeah. event could affect someone, no, no problem. And then the next person devastates them for the rest of their life. Absolutely. And what happens is that person who's now been, quote, retuned by that experience is literally shamed because of that retunement, because others around them haven't been retuned. And now they're basically humiliated. So they're not only are they injured by the event, they're injured about talking about the fact that they are injured. Which is so interesting because most of traumatic events it feels like it's our inability to respond or fight off the predator or fight off the person yeah. who traumatized us. But when we're children, those are our parents. Or they can be our parents. They're not right. always our parents. Right, or be, our caregiver. They, yeah. they can be care. Basically, there's something very special that happens with childhood traumatic experiences. And that is, there's a some tremendous power differential. And it's occurring... Uh, it, with a person who we it, almost in a sense innately trust, our bodies want to trust the person and in trusting that person, that vulnerability is not merely the physical injury, it's the violation of trust. So we have to understand that as a species, as humans, we survive primarily because we can trust others. And what trauma does, it disrupts the body retunes the nervous system, puts it into a chronic state of threat. So people are hypervigilant. Their bodies don't want to give others hugs. Proximity is now a threat. Uh, interestingly, the mental images that many people with who have experienced severe trauma is that they would love to have loving relationships. They love to be safe in the arms of another. But when they attempt to do that, their body recoils. So it's like they have two brains 
They have a brain with this intention to be a normal, happy human being. And then a very deep underlying their awareness and consciousness is the body trying to protect them, their nervous system's role in making sure they're not violated again. Yes, it sounds very familiar. And um, intimacy on all levels is difficult for people that are traumatized. The paradox is that it is difficult, but their intentionality, their mental images, is that they would like to have it. So it tells you a lot about what it is to be a human. We want those relationships. But the issue is if our bodies have been retuned to be in chronic states of threat. So if we almost toss out the word traumatized or trauma and say, is my body in a state of threat? Does it get out of states of threat? And do I really understand when it's in a state of threat? So does proximity with another, does that make my body feel uncomfortable that I need to get out of that relationship? And so we start to understand that being in the state of threat is the body's natural defense. It makes the body uh, stronger in a way to fight off predator. It makes the body more sensitive to signals of danger, more hypervigilant. But interestingly, uh, our nervous system, our bodies have always evolved to detect threat. And even when that threat is a pathogen, an illness, or a social cue. But what makes us as humans or uh, and other social mammals unique is that there are cues that turn off states of threat. And this is how uh, therapeutic strategies do work. They send cues of safety. And this is how, what does that mean? Well, we go back and we start understanding what does a baby, how does a baby detect safety? So when a baby is crying and someone picks up the baby and, the ba- and that person is a stranger, the baby continues to cry. But if the mother is there sending cues of safety with intonation of voice, with gesture, with smile, the baby calms down, the baby's safe again. If you have a kitten or a puppy, you know the same rules. If there is an agitated by a stranger in the house and you talk to your pet, your pet will relax. How do you talk to your pet? use a melodic voice. So, so our nervous systems, of, in a sense, the nervous systems of other social mammals evolve having this wonderful portal to turn off threat. And what happens though, when you suffer or have a history of trauma is when someone starts to come into your world with the melodic voice and the gestures and your body goes from this to this, what's the next response? The feedback of your body says, I'm vulnerable now and goes, it's getting the hell out of it. And this is, this is an interesting, uh, it says insight into the retuning of the nervous system from following a traumatic experience. So the body knows it can be safe, but it also knows that last time it was safe, it got injured. So with the, when we start using our own awareness of our own body, we start realizing that, yeah, wow, I felt safe for that moment and my body recoiled. What can I do so that it doesn't recoil? And this is where different uh, trauma-informed therapies or polyvagal-informed therapies work. I said, do it slowly. You know, learn, learn the feelings because your body is literally reacting in anticipation of something that is not going to occur. So it needs to be titrated. It needs to be moved in slowly. 
over time, people's bodies resolve. So the bottom line is, yes, your nervous system gets retuned. It gets retuned to become, uh, in a sense, a organism that is threat-oriented. But we have an onboard portal that enables us to feel safe. And that portal can be accessed through careful management. That's, that's really the message of how polyvagal form therapies work. It's an optimistic story. It doesn't mean that you're chronically in that state of defense. It sounds like such a, such a, such hope because um, as a traumatized child, I lived in a state of defense and um, it just road rage would just, and I never understood. I never understood why I overreacted so yeah. severely, like, and just someone cutting me off or pushing, pushing near me, you know, the whole body, just the whole organism is in, but it's angry too. Well, okay, let, let's let's retell your story from a different level. Let's start talking about this remarkable body that was trying to take care of you. Mm. And, and uh, this this person or this child who had a history of not being protected and the nervous system said, look, no one's going to be there to protect you. So the threshold to be defensive and reactive is going to be very low even when you're in the car and someone cuts you off. So your resilience isn't there. For moments that without that, without the threat or the possibility of intrusion, you appear or would appear, I assume, be normal <laughs> and, and you know get along with people. But any slight uh, intrusion would bring that other part out. And that part is there to protect you, but it needs to be taught that it doesn't need to protect you. And that, and that is really the hard part. And when we start segueing our discussion into a prison model, in a prison model, it's basically saying, you better, you better do this. Sense, it says that the agency of change is intention. And so it's a top-down model of correction and not an understanding of what the body has been retuned to be. So when a person is incarcerated from, let's say, habitual uh, defensive or aggressive, let's say habitual aggressive, and we retranslate the aggressiveness into defensiveness. And then we start seeing a formula. How do we turn a nervous system off from being defensive? Well, we have to give it cues of safety. But then we end up with, in a sense, I would say almost a moral veneer uh, that is resulting with ethical paradoxes. Why should we be nice to people who have been harmful? And we're, we're in a sense misunderstanding the uh, initiation or the uh, the ontology, uh, the history, the development of these of this response pattern. And the response pattern is the body of these individuals is trying to protect them. They're only on a sort of a mission of survival, and not on a mission of getting higher degrees or getting respect or accumulating wealth. It's on a mission of survival. And once we understand that it's such a, almost like a, uh, a raw drive to survive that cannot be controlled by a top-down intellectual view saying, well, I don't really need to survive. I'm, I'm safe in this world. It's not going to work. The primitive need to survive is just going to overwhelm it. So the people who are in that state can't voluntarily not be in that state. I think that's the paradox of the correctional model. 
they're in that state and they cannot voluntarily not be in that state. Yes. And so that's my biggest question and my biggest um, wish is how do we bring safety to prisons? That's. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would, I would in a sense say, how do we bring safety into the classroom? And how do we bring safety into family units, which is where we're even starting. And we, uh, we realize uh, how do we bring safety into the political arena? You know, how do we, how do we do, do the, how do we, <laughs> in a sense, when are we going to learn enough about what a human needs? They need to be heard, they need to be listened, they need to be witnessed. And every time that we tell a group of people that they are lucky to be where they are, which is often, even in the case of the incarceration, someone didn't get killed, they're lucky to be alive and incarcerated. Uh, we're missing the point. We don't know how their personal experience are. We're not listening to them. We're making decisions for them based upon our perspective. And the interesting part about life as I'm seeing it is if you just stop and listen to someone, if you witness them, the relationship and the interactions change. You don't have to agree with people. See, this is, again, we are in a, almost a materialistic worldview where we think that we can overpower and argue. And when we win the argument, there is no dissent. And that's not how it's done. We don't win arguments. You basically listen and certain decisions are made. They don't agree with it. Not everyone agrees with it, but decisions are made and the understanding and it says the compassion for other enables things to move forward but that's what it is it's the ability to listen and then open your heart because but but people in the correctional systems they're trained to shut their hearts down well they're adaptively so you're you're bringing up a real real important point and that is when do when does an individual shut their heart down when do they stop feeling the other person? When they're under a state of threat. So, I mean, you just gave the answer that in the correctional institute, the guards aren't safe. The staff exactly. is, doesn't feel safe. And not feeling safe is broadcast. It's broadcast voice, facial expression, gesture. And in the prison setting, it's broadcast in, in the mannerisms of the institution. I mean, it's all very unambiguous in, in, let's say, in a higher security type of facility, in a, in a uh, low security, what's the term they use for? Uh, low level or low, low level. level security. It's much more uh, interactive. And then yeah. people who see that say, well, why do they even call the prison? You know, they start, you know, they're missing the point of what is incarceration. And again, I, that, this is an important point to think about what incarceration is to a social mammal. The worst thing for a social mammal is isolation. And of course, in prisons, what is, what's the threat that's held over people? Social isolation. And there's another level of social isolation, solitary confinement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate. I mean, we're they put prisons four and five hours away from the center of, of towns. And yeah. um, 
So that's one level from isolation from direct contact with families, but then solitary. Solitary is, well, with a social mammal, if you put a social mammal in, in a solitary confinement, in, in this isolated, it's the worst thing for them. Their nervous system goes ballistic. I mean, it's just not healthy for them. And so it's, we treat it in, in metaphorically that solitary confinement is a punishment that will increase the motivation of the individual to conform or uh, with with the directives of whatever you're trying to do. It's a way of uh, breaking the will or whatever terminology is currently used. But it, it basically destroys the joy of living, the, the desire to survive. It changes it. But it also activates the fight flight uh, response. Uh, at first, at first. I mean, I would say that's the optimistic aspect of solitary confinement, meaning that the nervous system's initial reaction is to be uh, defensive, to go into fight flight. But the secondary response is total withdrawal and shutting down. You would see it as depression or just uh, lack of connection with others. And this also occurs when people are put into solitary for confinement for periods of time. And that's disastrous because joy of living or joie de vivre, you know, joy to stay alive is gone. I mean, and and that is, you know, that's when you start getting all these other types of uh, uh, what would be called comorbidities, meaning gut problems, heart problems, disease, because the nervous system is no longer managing the organs. The nervous system is now shutting down in defense. Oh, which kind of explains some of the comorbidities during yeah. COVID. Yeah. Oh. Uh, COVID is, we did a project on that. The, I, and we looked at childhood trauma, uh, or let's say adversity history. And we looked at subjective views of their own autonomic nerves, how reactive were they? And we looked at outcomes in terms of anxiety, depression, and worry. And the initial response is really quite interesting. Uh, the first uh, pass of the data follows the rules. The more adverse history you have, the more mental health symptomatology you have during COVID. These are people without the disease. However, virtually all the variants, all the prediction from child from adversity history is related to whether or not their autonomic nervous systems retuned into a state of defense. So if their autonomic nervous systems became more, let's say, hyperreactive, uh, and this would lead to comorbidities of gut and heart and all these other issues, then the psychological features were more manifested. Uh, but the important point here is that this was probably a parallel to what was also being called pre-existing conditions. Remember when the, the virus uh, pandemic started, people say, well, it's hitting those with pre-existing conditions. Well, those pre-existing conditions are probably trauma related. So in a sense with the autonomic nervous system, no longer has its resilience. And now we're reacting as if we're going to die. And we have two choices, fight or flee, which we'll do initially. And then when that doesn't work, we'll shut down. And the shutting down response is actually seen, a lot of the features are in the COVID long haul. So it's like the chronic fatigue syndrome that follows certain diseases. The body learned to shut down and hasn't gotten its uh, energy back. It doesn't, doesn't think it's, it's worth living in a sense. It's true. It's it's even happened to me on a minor micro level, um, but let's, if you don't mind, let's shift to 
like the polyvagal theory sure. just for our our students of trauma. Um, so I guess what is the polyvagal theory in a simple form? In simple form, it really is emphasizing that our physiological state, our autonomic state of our autonomic nervous system is a major mediator of how we react to the world, how we embrace the world or we retract or fight the world, one or the other. So based on this physiological state we're in, we're either accessible, engaging, good witnesses, uh, lack, lack, lack evaluation of others, we're there. You know, we're a compassionate, compassionate, passionate species. But if our body's in a state of mobilization, we may end up being very reactive and moving into a fight flight. And if our body starts moving into a shutting down state, we dissociate and literally disappear. So our goal is just not to be on the planet. And a lot of people who have trauma histories they gravitate to that because physically it's safer for them if they just don't exist. Uh, so you start seeing this whole trajectory. The interesting part about the polyvagal theory is that those three circuits of uh, social engaging, uh, co-regulatory, more physiologically homeostatic meaning supporting. Okay, so the polyvagal theory basically explains that those three different states a state that enables us to be accessible and socially interactive, supportive, and let's say compassionate of others or mutually regulate others. Uh, that state, <clears throat> um, we can move out of that state and we can be in a state of mobilization or fight flight. And when we're not in that state, we could even shut down and dissociate. So the theory basically says that our physiological state is this major a mediator of how we relate to the world, how we experience the world. And it's very predictable that as we shift physiological states, the, the uh, portfolio behaviors become obvious. So that, like when you talked about road rage, it's obvious that your physiological state was more primed at that point to be in the state of fight flight. If your physiological state would have been in a more calmer, socially engaged and more regulated state, you would say, ah, what an idiot, you know, and you would just kind of like let it go by. And even if you had this transitory thud in your heart and you felt that that was a little risky behavior, immediately that would be dissipated by this powerful calming aspect of your nervous system. But your nervous system says, no, nah, that's a real threat. And you went off, react that way. Uh, other people can get in a sense frightened or scared and they pass out. And other people will just laugh at them because what are you afraid of? Well, it's not a psychological fear. It's that the body went into that state. And so we, we often misunderstand the observables and we start labeling them with intention. Um, so when we look at a mouse in the jaws of a cat, we say, oh, that mouse is playing dead. But it's obviously not from a conscious awareness. It's a reflex. But you're saying choice is we label, we say people have a choice of these behaviors and this is the key. The choice of behaviors resides primarily in one physiological state. When our bodies are safe or physiologically safe, we have access to all attributes of that nervous system so that we can use that mobilization and we call it play or dance. If we are with another person, we make facial contact and talk to them. We have the enjoyment of movement, but we have the co-regulation of their social contact with us. Take the face of the interaction away, the mobilization, 
become can become aggressive. We can see this on the playground when a person gets hit and walks away from another, as opposed to you hit someone and you reach over and pick the guy off the ground and say, look, I'm very sorry, everything's fine. But if you hit the guy even lightly and walk away, you're now doing just like the road rage, you're triggering a person and you're not creating the co-regulatory component that the nervous system is craving. So, so the issue is when we talk about uh, freedom of choice or choice or agency where we control our life, think twice about that, that we in a sense give it up when our physiology isn't safe or if we structure environments where people's physiologies are now more primed to go into defense states, their ability to make choices, uh, well-informed choices, changes. So we have a whole criminal justice system and a whole addiction system based yeah. on the fact that people are making choices during these acts of, yeah. of fight or flight. Yeah, well, we're, we're also, even though we're, we're saying that, we're acknowledging that they made poor choices. But right, were these choices, were these well, choices? That's well, the question, this interesting type of question, because we want to not, in a sense, excuse decisions that people make that are injurious to others. But we want to start educating people about their own body, that when their body goes into certain states, it's now vulnerable to make bad choices. Right. I'm going to argue the choice word, I would say reactions, which is more, yeah, which yeah. Is, I, I, like you say, I, I, it's the autonomic system. It's the, it's the, which you, you call it neuroception, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I call it neuroception because there's no cognitive component to it. It's the body's really desire to detect safety and threat in the environment. In a sense to do good things for you. And when you have any type of trauma history, the system gets very biased to detect threat, even when threat isn't there. So, and it really is reluctant to accept safety because it's got injured in the past. So, so the, the part is, again, I, I would tend to agree with you. I wouldn't like to use the word choice all the time. The body, because we end up with issues of responsibility, then we move into the judicial system, but we can start seeing that decision-making, even in the research literature, decision-making is affected by physiological state. So if we acknowledge that, then the notion of what choices we're likely to make under, in certain physiological states become different. Yes, and now we can say, now that we have this understanding, we know when a child is raised in a foster environment, their outcomes aren't, are almost predictable 80% end up in prison. Um, and the numbers of young women who are pregnant before the age of 18 or 16, it's high. And the percentage on death row, I heard it was like 80% on death row. Um, these, I, I've been working with a group in Australia, it's called the Australian Childhood Foundation, and they work with foster children. And the question I keep asking them is how do you work with them? How do you rehabilitate them if they have no history of being safe with an adult? You know, because in the world that we're in, we realize that most people survive very, very difficult situations and they survive it with visual images of a loved one. 
of knowing that there was at times someone really cared for them. When we deal with foster children who are removed from their biological family because the family's been abusive and dangerous for the child, what does the child, what is the child taking with them? Uh, yeah. So what are the what is what is this organization doing? Do we have hints? Because we need them for prison. Yeah, they have hints, but the word is that the question I asked. And actually, I wrote the forward to a book that they put together. And the question, and I think the forward focuses on that safety is the treatment or being safe is the treatment. They basically say, yes, there are little glimmers, or little instances of where the child becomes accessible and safe, and you have to work with those. So you have to work with those. You can't expect the child to have that same uh, range of reversibility. So the child is accessible, they're not, and is accessible. Those moments of accessibility have to be cherished and nurtured. So I guess we would say the same thing for the prison environment. Yeah. So we were talking about safety mm -hmm. in, in the prison environment and well, actually in the foster youth environment, but transforming, trans, trans, transferring that to the prison environment maybe little bits of safety because safety is their number one concern in the prison environment mm. that's yeah. that's the officers that's all they care about is being safe is going home that night mm. but my feeling is that if they created an environment of safety that was actually not punitive and was more responsive yeah well i i go back remember i mentioned that i did you know, i have a limited experience in, in a correctional institute because i was a prison guard uh, during the summer, one summer when I was a grad student. But I remember reading in the materials about this notion that this was a correctional institution, not a penal institution, that there was a difference in the models. But I think prisons and our quote correctional institutions have literally just given lip service to the word correctional and it's been really treated as a penal system. And I think we have to start understanding what it is that a nervous system needs to feel safe, to feel safe enough to be rehabilitated. And what we're talking about is social rehabilitation, to become a trustworthy individual within society. And that, you know, that effort uh, is important. Uh, I, it's, it's a, I think there are really a, a good parallel in the world of foster child care and prisons. So I, I talked at a conference on foster children and I met some, uh, basically I, I met the angels, the, the people who take in foster children. And one was a woman who was a product of foster care herself. And she was a true angel and you know had kids over like a 30 or 40 year living in her home. And you start hearing these various stories, and that is, they're going to break your heart. They're going to steal from you know. She's telling me all the things, all the all the good and all the bad things that the lack of certainty and is the fear. And in some situations where one foster child would get adopted and the other one wouldn't, it created again a more of this violation of trust even within the foster child realm. Uh, and what do we do with foster children? Quote, they age out of the system. Right. And then we, we, we drop them 
uh, into society and what happens to them, then they end up in correctional institutions. Um, it's not a, it's not providing a very positive uh, statement of our, of how humane we are as a society and our caring of others. I was very, you know, I looked at that video of the circle uh, and I was very taken by that. And I was thinking about uh, that as a, as a clinical exercise that as people stepped in and shared that moment, how did they interact with each other after that experience? That's, that's the key to the circle is sitting in circles, sitting in a circle and talking about their traumas. That's what, that's the model that we've created. And that, to me, that's the, that's the secret sauce is the time after they're, they do the circle and they realize that they're equally, have, they've all been violated and they've all lost trust. Yeah. And have, uh, in, in your program, in your work, have people used equine therapy, horses and dogs and well, um, I actually know one woman who's doing equine and I know there's a dog program. If you saw in the circle, there were a few dogs there. So they're, they're rehabilitating. The dogs are rehabilitating the men and vice versa. Well, the interesting thing with dogs and with horses that often people who have been violated by other people feel safe enough to trust a horse or a dog. It's, it's really quite remarkable and they want to trust these animals. And the animals uh, pick up the cues very readily. And the animals are picking up cues of warmth and acceptance in these people. Well, I got a dog when I was eight years old and I think it saved my life. And mm -hmm. I won't live without a dog for the rest of my life. I told my husband, we're gonna always have a dog. And, yeah. but I think that, I think all prisons should have the dog program and the horse program is fantastic. Uh, even a cat program, even though they're not, uh, they're not as social. But they're warm and fuzzy. So. Yes. <laughs> it's probably a kitten program for that. So, you know, but I, I understand your point. The beauty of dogs is that they require face-to-face -face interactions. So if you don't look at your dog and you don't talk to your dog in a prosodic modulated voice, the dog interprets it as rejection. Yes. And, and we play with our heads together. Yeah. As you've said in other podcasts, I've been listening to hundreds of your podcasts. I'm obsessed. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about the three states. There's safety, mobilization, and immobilization. Yeah. And um, there's one thing you, you talked about in a different podcast. You said that some people do risky behavior. Ah, yeah, I, I know where you're going. As a state regulator. And, and that is... If you really have experienced severe trauma, there's a possibility that your body shut down uh, during that where you couldn't move and you were just totally overwhelmed by it. And it wasn't a voluntary reaction, but your body just said, I'm out of here. So you shut down or dissociated and what happened happened and you're still alive. So the adaptive function was actually good because you weren't physically injured more uh, the the issue uh, on that I need a hint. What was I talking about before? Oh, oh, we were talking about risky behavior. Okay, thank you. So uh, I, I knew I was going somewhere. I just forgot where I was. Okay, so that your body 
calm down, shut down, and you're alive now to talk about it. But your body never wants to go back into that shutting down state. It has this degree of vulnerability, a lack of control. It, it, the, the nervous system never wants to go there. I view it as, in a sense, falling into that abyss. And those of you who have had serious traumas, you know what the abyss is. You just don't want to sit still. Stillness bothers you. You don't want to go into that because as long as you're moving, you can't fall into that abyss. And that's neurophysiologically a valid judgment to make because the states of the autonomic nervous system are hierarchical so that if you're mo moving, you can't shut down. And so what people often do who have these severe histories of shutting down and potentially dissociating and other features, is they'll do high-risk behaviors, which are highly mobilized behaviors, uh, dangerous behaviors. So it key, as long as their body, in a sense, uh, people say they get adrenaline rushes or they need that feeling, but as long as their body is now tense enough to move and they're not going to go into that abyss. So it's adaptive staying out of that abyss. So we could also add ADHD to that kind of thing. And um... yeah, uh, or let's say anxiety, hyper, you know, very anxious. I mean, there's a lot of terms out there where people could be viewed as being very irritable or very, in a sense, in, using California terms, tightly wrapped still use it, you know, where it's basically describing someone who is reactive. So you have to be careful what you say. Um, these are all uh, reflections of a nervous system that is dominated by your mobilization system, your sympathetic nervous system that supports fight flight. We see this in people that we know, we see that their faces don't glow. And we're really concerned that if we say something, they'll pounce on us. And you know, so it's it's projected in their face. It's broadcast in their voices. Their voices don't have a melodic sound, but it's much more tense in their voice. And we're just we tend to, in a sense, tiptoe around them uh, because they're they're going to react to us. We know that. And what they're they're telling us is they're in a physiological state that's primed to be reactive. Sounds like me a few years ago. Um, could you tell us what dissociation means? Because I, I don't think- Yeah, dissociation is quite a, it's an interesting phenomenon. So that, and it's, and it's very, very uh, prevalent within the trauma world. Because let's start off with, we talked about uh, the possibility of death fainting or shutting down. Uh, and so where the person passes out and they're just not in their body. Well, that's not a healthy thing to do, passing out under the, that level of uh, fear. It's, I, rather, I don't like this, like, let's say that level of danger or life threat um, is not healthy because we need uh, oxygenization to go to our brain. We need our heart rates to beat relatively fast to get blood up there. And when you pass out, not enough blood is there and you hit the ground and that gets your heart to the level of your brain so you often do okay but what happens is that since it's potentially lethal to shut down like that our nervous system is smart so what does it do on subsequent times when the same cues that would have resulted in us shutting down we just dissociate we maintain enough of the sympathetic nervous system going to ensure that there's enough blood going to our muscles 
and oxygenated blood going to our brain. And so we may literally functionally freeze with muscle tone and then dissociate, we go someplace else. So we start adjusting uh, so that we don't kill ourselves in our own defensive reactions, but we adjust by in a sense, not experiencing, dissociating, being someplace else when these things are happening to us. So individuals who are in, let's say cases of serial rape or uh, abduction, they will adaptively dissociate. It's not a voluntary thing. The body will do that. So some people, the threshold to dissociate is low and some it's so high they can't do that. So they experience uh, pain and injury. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 you call it the reptilian piece. So there's the three, the three st stages. There's um, freeze, I guess we call it freeze, and that's the reptilian. Well, you see, I, I, reptiles will immobilize uh, because they have big brains. It's very common in them. And so that immobilization system, uh, in fact, they, they do things like they will immobilize and defecate. Then they don't, because uh, digestion is metabolically costly. If they defecate, guess what? Metabolically costs are lower. So they can hold their breath longer for a couple hours. So there's really an adaptive feature of not moving and defecating and going potentially underwater. So that's, that's their strategy. So we have the same neural circuit in, in our body. And when that gets recruited, we don't do so well because we need lots of oxygen. You know, we have big brains. We don't have reptilian brains. Reptilian brains are very small. Ours are large. We have a great need for oxygen. So that when we immobilize, uh, we can't do it too long or too often. So the nervous system makes an adjustment. So freeze becomes that adjustment where collapse would be much more like a reptilian reaction. Uh, collapse. Collapse or, or multi-system shutting down. Uh, but freeze, we're even thinking of the word freeze has tension in it, it has sufficient muscle tone so that the body doesn't hit the ground. So it's a hybrid of which a smart nervous system creates to keep us alive, with, to reduce our injury. So if we start looking at our reactions with a loving kindness to who we are, we don't get angry at it and say, oh shit, I froze, I didn't fight my way out of it. You say, wow, what a nervous system, how clever. Here I am, I didn't hit the ground, I didn't crack my head open. And yeah, I was abused, but look where I am now. So my nervous system was my protector. It was minimizing the injury that I was occurring. Incredible. And, you know, just, I want to just talk about gratitude and resilience now, because I know our time is, is running out. And, um, but I also wanted to ask you about, you talked about a first responder defecating. And I, I just wanted clarification on that because I thought people defecate when they're in shock or is what is that? Oh, I didn't mention a first responder. I said reptiles defecate. No, I know, but <laughs> in another interview you did. I think you did. Okay, so. never mind. I might have, I might have but, uh, but let, let's assume that a first responder defecate, okay? And so let's go from there. Well, no, it's okay. That was just, I just wanted clarification on but that. I think that I might've talked about a first responder. What I was, I think I was talking about the Florida shootings where a person was literally uh, immobilized and wouldn't go into the building and they were treating him as if he were a coward. 
and firing. And I said, we don't know that. That that is that's a judgment. It's a possibility that his intention wanted to go there, but his body just wouldn't allow him. And we don't know that. And since we don't even when it goes into the news, it's not part of the potential possibility. But there is that possibility because we're not all, in a sense, wired to be heroes. I mean, we may have the intention to be a hero. So we don't know. I'll give you my own experience, which is I, it has nothing to do with being a first responder. It has to do with going into an MRI. Mm. And, uh, you know, as a scientist, I was very curious because my colleagues and even my son and his research, uh, they do brain scanning MRIs. So I had to go in and get one. And I was kind of interested. But I, as I got into it, I got up to my nose and said, wait a minute, I need a glass of water. When I got the glass of water, I went in, they got back over my nose and said, get me out of here. I just could not deal with that confinement. Now, there are times you need MRIs, so you take medication to go in it. But the point was, I didn't know that my body would trigger a panic reaction in confined space. I fly, I do things. So it wasn't like confined spaces were flags to me. So I was just totally shocked by my own body's reaction. I think this can be the same situation in life threat situation. We don't know how our body will react and it's presumptuous and inappropriate for us to make decisions about other people's intentions. Absolutely. Okay, so just quickly about gratitude because you talk about it in your other podcasts about how important it is for our nervous system. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is that uh, actually, I would actually deconstruct it even further. We have to stop feeling that we're under threat, which means we have to stop feeling that we're always being evaluated. We have to restructure how we interact with the world so that we have gratitude for our day-to-day -day existence. So I'm going to actually ask the people who are listening, if you didn't have a threats, which could be manifested as financial needs or evaluation in work or school, how, what would your life be like? How would you feel? Would you still have curiosity to learn? Would you still have a, a desire to be helpful, to be a productive and helpful human being? And I would say most people would, and they would rather see a world that was about shared journeys of discovery and helping others than a world of accumulation and power. So what I'm really trying to say is when we step back, we have to feel a gratitude for what it is in our core, who we are. And who we are as a species is a remarkable species because we're a species that cares about others. And we're a species whose primary motivation is to interact with others, to co-regulate, to feel comfortable in the presence of another. So rather than arrogance and disdain for others, we like feeling accessible because through accessibility, we interact and we co-regulate. We feel better about ourselves and we are able to help others feel better about themselves. Co-regulation to me seems to be the key, isn't it? it it's the key to, okay, I like to call it our biological imperative, meaning that without it, we as a species doesn't, we don't exist. And when you talk about the issue of incarceration and the prison population, that is a population that does not have a history uh, or many of them don't have a history of 
let's say, more optimal co-regulation. And that's why you also see addictive behaviors as being part of this high-risk behaviors. But addictive behaviors are other strategies to regulate their physiology because their social interactions aren't working or they don't have them. So as a species, we evolve to regulate our threat reactions, not through opiates, but through social interactions, to being witnessed, to being heard, to being supported by the presence of another, not by being evaluated, not by being chastised and yelled at for what we're doing, but to be understood. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so two hints on how to regulate the system and... Okay, so, so we have a real problem that you're, you're identifying, and that is when people don't have a history of co-regulation, don't have a history of safety with biological parents, what can we do? That's really what you're asking. And th there are insights gained from an understanding of our, of our body, of our nervous system, and, and our own species as a history of our species. And that is, there are certain things that are calming in our body that bring us back into this physiological state of safety that enable us to be accessible and co-regulatory. Through breath, breathing practices can calm people down. So yoga practices, slow breathing practices, especially uh, slow exhalations are calming. Uh, people who sing, in fact, you'll start finding that there are like groups that sing could even be in prisons. They're going to be doing better. Or if there's a a wind instrument group or a, a harmonicas, it doesn't matter. As long as you spend more time exhaling than inhaling, your body will start calming down. And if you watch even how people breathe who are tightly wrapped and anxious or angry, it's much more on the inhalation because that turns off their calming circuits. So their bodies are adjusting for combat. They're huffing and puffing. And what we want to do is reverse that. We want the breath to come out the voice to become softer, or not this softer, more melodic, but we want the muscles literally to be softer and not as tense. We want to calm people down. And when we do that, it's not only they become more social, they become healthier. So the, all these comorbidities are what we call stress-related disorders, are truly disorders in which our nervous system has stopped regulating the organs and has prepared the body to be in states of defense. Wow. I just think of my family, if we had this information 50 well, years ago. Well, the part is, see, I think uh, the information has always been there. And the information uh, has been, in a sense, cordoned off because over the past hundred years or so, we started to treat the body much more mechanistically with a belief system that we could repair any injury through medicine or surgery. And our bodies really needed to be comforted in, the, in a blanket of safety through human social interaction. So part of my message really is that our sociality and our social interaction is literally and neurophysiologically a mediator of our health. It's real. It's not something, oh, it's nice if you're nice to people. But being nice to people changes our physiology and optimizes our health. And it also changes the world. Slowly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the issue is because what we're really saying is the world will only change when we acknowledge that removal of threat is good 
but it's not safety. Our bodies need cues of safety. And we have really emphasized removal of threat. So when we put metal detectors in buildings and schools, yeah, they may be reducing threat, but they're also producing cues of threat to others. And we need to, in a sense, calm the nervous systems with cues of safety. We need to bring that into the same environments with a passion. Right. I mean, when you're in prison, a the sound of the keys of a, an officer walking down the hall is, is not a cue of safety. So you just brought back memories of my summer. Those are big keys. I remember that. <laughs> Very big keys. And um, yeah, I, and you know, in, in prisons, there's a, I would say there's myths, both in the in myths uh, told by security guards and myths that are, are like urban myths that are perpetrated within the prison environment itself. And they really need to have a better sense of what it is, what, what do humans need? And they, they need to feel safe. And I think prisons teach us some of that because people tell you they don't feel safe in prisons. And I'll end with this quote that you said in a different podcast. You said, the quest for safety is the basis of living a su successful life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's our, that's our whole goal. And it's, again, if we look at modern civilization and we're talking about several, you know, a few thousand years, uh, safety isn't high up there. It's really about dominance and control. And the, in the Western world, it's dominance, control, and acquisition. So it's all about stuff and not about feelings. And not about feeling safe. It's about having uh, stuff. And stuff is merely a metaphor of resource that we need uh, to live. But we just don't need that much. You know, we're actually uh, a little bit of humility. Uh, a little bit of gratitude will go a long way. Thank you, Dr. Porges. It's been such an honor to talk with you. And... Um, thank you for your wisdom and your grace. Well, thank you very much for seeing it. And thank you for your work. I mean, someone has, I mean, what you're doing is, it's bold and important. And I congratulate you on doing it. Thank you so much. What an incredible interview with Dr. Stephen Porges. I'm so honored and so blessed to have had this discussion with him. His wisdom and his perspective is, is crucial to the transformation of our society. Um, I highly recommend The Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory. And, and as usual, please subscribe, like, and share our podcast. And please visit our website at CompassionPrisonProject.org. And if you haven't seen Step Inside the Circle, please watch it and share it. And if you're so moved, donate to our cause. Thank you so much for watching. <laughs>